This is no small part. No small part. No small part. This is no small parts. I am Brittany Brewer. When did you start going that direction with like sound specifically? So I started learning like sound programs for classes in college because I had to do um, like audio recordings of like poetry performance. Um, yeah. This is Hunter Robinson. Okay, that's cool. For for one of the um, for one of my classes, because one of the whole things was like we did a video project and like an audio uh, like track project. So there was like music and sound effects underneath stuff. Um, he is a theater artist, poet, and streamer living and working in Philadelphia. So that's when I started getting to know Audacity a little better. I've fiddled around with audio programs for a long time. I even like tried to make music in like high school and stuff um, on like Fruity Loops because um, <laughs> that was back when dubstep was big. <laughs> so that's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But the truth is, like, most of the time, I'm just like, God, I, I'm having this issue, or, like, I want to do this thing, and it's like, alright, uh, I'm just gonna type that shit into Google mm. and see what happens. <laughs> On today's episode of No Small Parts, Hunter talks about saying yes and, his experience producing as a part of a student-run theater company while going to college for theater, and the importance of asking for help when you need it. Cheers! Are you in fact? Uh, are you in fact drinking whiskey? I am. I uh, I have the um, I have the two year Millstone Rye. Um, yeah. So that that's what I got going on in my nice little Mesa Verde. That's pretty. Because I'm also the kind of person who like I drink everything out of mugs. Um, it's a superior drinking vessel. I, I will even, like, eat ice cream out of mugs. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever, like, gone down that rabbit hole of, like, yeah, I'm going to scoop into a mug instead of uh, a bowl, but it, like, gives you very reasonable proportions for your ice cream. I, I haven't, but I feel like I should because it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, yeah. And it's, like, less spread out, so I feel like it might melt slower, even. Um, I might be making that up because science. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> I'm going to say yes. Let's just say that I, I know the most brilliant way to eat ice cream, and that's the secret that I'm passing on today. I, My um, life hack. I'm officially trying uh, the Poga cider. Oh, yeah? I'm How is it? True. It's good. It's, it tastes like vacation in a glass. That sounds lovely. It's like, if you were to add grenadine, I would think we were all on, like, a resort getting really ridiculous drinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I was considering cracking that, and then I was like, wait, she might be drinking the same thing? And then I'd be like, yeah, we planned this. <laughs> Promotional moment, uh, go to Hale and True. <laughs> Which is a local cidery. Which is a local cidery. Yeah. <laughs> During quarantine, they're doing growler fills to go. 
And they're giving you the growler at cost. <laughs> I now have two of those giant growlers from them. Okay. Let's let's do some of this thing. Let's do some of this thing. And some yeah. of this I don't know about you, which was like, what was your gateway to theater? Were you always you were an actor. You weren't director first. You like yeah, dabbled in yeah. acting. I would say that I actually I came to directing relatively late in the process. Um, I I got my start in theater because my sister did theater. Okay. Um, and so I I started doing theater as just like an actor in middle school because it was the only option. Like there was no other program other than like this is the theater class and it's an acting workshop with like a little bit of theater context yes, yeah. um and then i sort of slowly transitioned going into high school i got more into the technical side okay so like i did a lot of set building and then eventually moved into i actually did a lot of the audio um in the later years of high school where like um me and a few other people were technically county employees um because we were just student technicians so we just had like a small hourly rate that like people who were renting the space didn't have to pay for like pros they could just pay for us um so i ended up doing a lot of like audio and like basic light programming through that um so but at, at the same time i was yeah i was still doing acting like the whole way through high school um i, I guess technically started producing in high school as well okay. um but it i i would say that it was informal producing because there were still a lot of actual adults involved yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like, it wasn't, like, the 17-year-old kid running the show. It was just, like, it was my idea, and, like, yes, I did a lot of the organization, but there was a lot of assistance there. Um, yeah. Do you think you got into, like, set building and sound just sort of because it, like, appeared as an option? Like, whereas before it was, it was, like, acting, 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 and then all of a sudden in high school there were options? Or is there something that pushed you? You know, honestly, I I think it was just I am the kind of person where I don't really care what aspect I'm involved in um, if I am enjoying the work that I'm doing. Yeah, totally. Um, and so I think that, like, for one thing, it was, like, there were more options available of, like, yeah, I can do, you know, run crew and and set building and and what have you um but a lot of it just can, came down to like yeah i'll do all of it i don't i don't really mind i can just you know wear different hats um for whatever because also like acting all the time is exhausting oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely exhausting tell me more about your like high school dabbling and producing and like did you know that's partly what that was when you were doing that in high school you know um honestly i didn't even really think about it as producing yeah. until i started producing like in college mm -hmm. and was like oh that's what i did way back when yes. um 
So the, the way I got into producing in high school was I was also captain of our improv team okay. um, for like a number of years. Um, yeah, I was just Mr. Theater uh, <laughs> in high school. I had lots of friends and was very cool. Now it's on the record. No one can uh, can deny it. You were theater uh, cool, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so... The, the way improv worked in my county, uh, there were really only, there was really only one school, sometimes two, that did improv meets at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and on top of that, like our improv tr- team had been kind of struggling to, to keep up um, for many years. And finally I was like, you know what, like we should host an improv event and like, I'm not going to make it like any of the other stuff like I'm gonna get like people from outside the theater space to be judges um and like I want to bring in as many teams as possible and make it more of like a festival type of deal than it was like an improv meet um so you sort of event planned slash produced which I feel like is another language for that like an improv festival is almost like a mini fest yeah. Improv. One and two. What what it was on top of that was there was a scholarship for kids in my high school and one other um, that a family had set up, and it was specifically for people who were going to pursue arts and theater in college. That's cool. Um, yeah. But the family was having trouble, like, keeping up the funds to, like, mm. keep giving out this scholarship. And so what I decided to do is, like, you know what? I'm going to take the funding out of their hands and just will do this, what I called it, improvathon. Um, <laughs> so we're going to do improvathon as a like charity event where like all of the proceeds like all of the ticket sales and everything like all went into the scholarship fund uh so that we were essentially just like paying forward uh for people to continue going to school for like theater and and arts like i'm kind of event planning, kind of producing, but, like, didn't really think of it as either, because it was very much just a, like, this doesn't exist, and when I asked someone else to do it, they were like, no. I was like, well, then I guess I'll do it myself, you know? (laughs) Um, And I I feel like that's kind of where the spirit of most of my producing came from, was just like, well, no one else is gonna do it, so let's gear up and go. Exactly. So you were acting and building sets and doing a lot of audio design and support and some like miniature producing and then you went to school for theater specifically focusing on acting at that point? Yeah, so I it's funny. I I went to school for theater and I specifically chose Temple because they weren't a BFA or, like, a conservatory. A BFA is a Bachelor of Fine Arts. BFAs often require less general education courses and more classes focused on the nuances of a specific art. Hunter's BA in theater had him taking classes in acting, design, production, history, and management. 
A BFA in acting would have focused him intensely and almost exclusively on acting fundamentals, methodologies, voice work, and movement. Yes. Um, but at the time, the plan was like, I'm gonna go for school, like, I'm gonna go to school for acting and, like, become an actor, and, like, that's what I'm gonna do. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Which, like, that's everyone going yeah. into school for theater. We're totally taught that, though, too. Yeah, yeah. Um, <sighs> yeah, so I, I kind of came out of high school as, like, a Mr. Do-It-All, and then I was like, you know what? I'm gonna, like, really buckle down. I'm gonna focus on just, like, performance, and that's gonna be what I do for the next four years. Um, <laughs> What a fool. <laughs> what a fool 18-year-old Hunter was. <laughs> and, like, we all feel that, too. I think everyone oh, yeah. who, like, came in as an actor and is now doing something else. Tell me about working with your student players group. Um, yeah, so, for one thing, like, Almost all of my production experience is through, like, academic theater. Um, I, I should say that just, like, up front. But we had formed a student-run theater company. Like, a mm-hmm. full company. We had a board of directors. Um, we wanted to essentially make it like working in the city. But without having to worry so much about, like how are we going to find the money to do all of this? Like, how are we going to find space? Like, we have this academic space, but we want students to have more opportunities to get hands-on experience. Mm -hmm. And so actually how I came to start working with uh, Temple Theater's side stage is what it was called, um, is that I auditioned for like the fall for temple didn't get anything and i was like yeah okay that i'm a freshman it's my first semester that's expected um and then immediately someone came to me and was like hey you're not working on anything but we had auditions for like this side stage show but we didn't get enough people for, like, this specific show. Would you be mm-hmm. interested? And so I was kind of like, you know what? Sure. Like, it'll give me something to do. Why not? And so I meet person who is directing this particular piece uh, in order to, like, interview an audition. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was one of the founding members of the company, uh, and he had this uncanny ability to look into your eyes and say, you want work? <laughs> I, good. I will give you work. And all you have to do is exchange your soul <laughs> and always work forever and never stop. Um, <sighs> in a good way. Yeah. I should say that. Um, and so I, I met him and we like got to talking uh, and he was like, I'm not going to make you audition. Do you want the part? And I was like, yeah, sure. Um, and getting to know him during that process, because I was actually, it was a 
staged reading, kinda. Okay. I would say it was more like a workshop production, where, like, by the end, we didn't have scripts in hand. Um, but, like, the playwrights were free to make edits up and, like, through the performances of the show. Um, so our, our playwright just decided not to. Um, it was, like, a little 10-minute play festival. But basically... Everyone in my cast, for the most part, was upperclassmen and, like, involved in different stuff already. Mm -hmm. um, and getting to know each of them, they were kind of like, Hey, like, we've got more stuff for you to do uh, if you are interested. And I was like, yeah, yeah I would love to. Um, and at the time, like, Side Stage was still getting sort of acquainted with like being a company that produced multiple shows um, and so it was very much like yeah these two or three people do everything all yes. the time yeah um, which is I think a, a thing that anyone who has worked in like independent theater can identify with mm -hmm. it's just like yeah two or three people just do whatever do needs getting done <laughs> Um, they hang the lights, they do the, the drapes, like, everything happens, and it's all one person, and we owe our blood, sweat, and tears to this person, but, like, yeah, they just did it. Um, and so I became one of those people. Yes. And... <laughs> From there, I then applied and joined the board of directors for the theater organization uh, all the way up until, like, my senior year. Um, and by senior year, it was mostly just, like, it's time to, like, hand this down to people. Mm -hmm. And, like, I have other projects. I have to focus on other things, like, for me now. Um, and, like, I'm just going to entrust it to yeah. the people below me. Um so yeah, that's kind of how I got started working in that. And it was honestly a lot of just like, I did whatever was needed. Um, yep, yep. A lot of it came down to electrics. I ended up doing a lot of lighting hangs and focus and like programming because I like knew enough to be useful, <laughs> um, which is a very important thing. I think it's like, it, it sounds a little cynical of, like, you need to know enough to be useful, but it's, like, if someone can tell you to do the most basic task and you can just do it without having to ask any further questions, that's the exact measure. It's not, like, anything more than that. It's just, like, something base level, I can handle this um, and do it right. Um and so that's that's kind of how I got more and more involved and like slowly made my way up into like, okay, now I'm on the the like board of directors. I'm helping make decisions on like who's fulfilling all of these like designer and director roles. What are we doing for our season? You know, how are we finding funding? Um, what spaces do we have access to? Um, and as that sort of progressed, I then assisted the same person who had gotten me involved, Alex. Um, I then was his assistant producer on a one-act musical called Glory Days. 
Which I don't know if you know about Glory Days. I do it, not know about Glory Days. It's a one-act musical. I think it closed before it ever, like, opened on Broadway. Um, <laughs> I think it had a couple of previews and then ended. Okay. Um, no comment on the quality <laughs> of the musical. Um, but we, we produced it... Um, during a time that was known as TU Arts Fest, uh, which is something that Alex had essentially pitched to one of the deans of Temple. Okay. Um, and so it was just like a week-long arts programs festival thing. Cool. And he was running, like, all of that. And he was like, I need someone just to, like, be able to go into the room and, like, be my eyes and ears. Like would you be interested? Uh, and I was like, yeah, of course I'd be interested. What year were you at that point? Um, I think I was still a freshman. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Um, I think that was spring of my freshman year was I assisted uh, him on producing that. And again, it was very much like a, I just needed to be there as like a point of contact and like mm -hmm. to... And, like, on very small things, make decisions. Yes, um, yeah. Because, like, Alex couldn't be in the room all the time. Um, I mean, what sounds really cool about what you're talking about is it sounds a little bit like you almost had, like, a low-key accidental apprenticeship model. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think a lot of it, too, just came down to I was hungry for it. Um. And I, you know, I had other things that I was working on in the department. We would take, like, different contracts with different, usually technical departments. Um, and that was kind of our... That was kind of their way of being like, Hey, you actors, you gotta <laughs> learn all your theater studies stuff, too. You gotta know how the whole shit functions. And for people like me, it was great, because I was like, Yeah, you mean I get to do lighting for a whole semester? Let's do it, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, also, what I loved about you talking about lighting earlier was your moment on, um, like, just knowing enough. Just yeah. knowing enough to be in the room and being willing to like sort of teach yourself or learn the rest as you go, giving you enough of an edge to contribute to the project. Yeah, I think that that's something that honestly everyone in theater can use, but especially producing, is the idea of know enough about just about everything mm -hmm. um, that you can wear that hat if you need to. Or even just enough to communicate effectively with that department, you know? It was something that one of my professors for design had taught me. Um, he was kind of like, you need to know enough about each of these departments so that you can communicate with them in yes. these meetings. Um, yep. Because, like... At the end of the day, you're all making one cohesive piece rather than you're designing, you know, your section. Yeah. It's not the it's not the group project of like, hey, you do these three slides, I'll do these three slides, yeah. and then we'll just present it on the day and it'll be fine. It's like, no, we gotta form all of it together. Um 
having a base level of knowledge is really important to that communication. Yeah, there needs to be a few people who speak all of the languages. Yeah. So, walk me through your most memorable experience producing a reading with Side Stage, whether it's good or bad or other or in between. Ooh, uh, <laughs> yeah. So, my my most memorable experience was definitely not great. I would describe it as when you go through something and everything goes about as wrong as it could be while <laughs> still like on the surface looking put together. Yes, yeah. Um, that like teaches you everything you need to know all in one. Mm -hmm. um, when I was a sophomore, I was essentially the executive producer for the Short Stuff Festival, which is the same festival that I had gotten involved with for the first time the year before. And that's uh, the festival of, like, the staged readings where, like, yeah. actors might be getting new pages, might not, depending on the playwright. Yeah, and you usually do... I think they usually did, like, six plays, okay. uh, like, six ten-minute plays. Uh, that particular year, I believe we had seven Okay. Um, and again, like, we were still a very small organization at this point. Um, and the biggest problem was just getting people. Because um, the department as a whole had overextended a bit in their production schedule. They did, I think, two or three, like, very big productions. Um, okay, yeah. And they were about two weeks behind on anything mm. goes in terms of like everything um which like not a good show to be two weeks behind no. on um and so everyone was just kind of stretched really thin but from the beginning it was kind of an issue our production stage manager was also managing anything goes at uh, the time yeah. yes um and it would have been done about a week before. Production stage managers are often responsible for managing a team of stage managers, overseeing a theater's full season, hiring production staff like designers and directors, and drafting their contracts, creating master calendars, and running production meetings. There's a lot of crossover between the work of production managers, production stage managers, and stage managers, and sometimes these roles are combined into one position for a smaller production or company. If you were producing a staged reading with several folks, you each might absorb some of the responsibilities of a production stage manager into your work as a producer instead of having a separate PSM. Uh, so basically what I said to the production stage manager was like, hey, I know that you're busy with that. I can handle the organization and all you have to do is step in like before tech week. I'll sit you down with all of the directors. We'll like dry tech and then just do tech week and it'll be fine. Tech week is about what it sounds like. 
It is the time before production of a show opens when the director, stage manager, designers, and actors, and sometimes the producers or artistic director, come together to combine all the pieces in motion, often for the first time. It allows the artistic team to see what works and what doesn't, based on their original goals and to make final changes. Often, Tech Week or Tech Rehearsal is the first time the artistic team is in the performance space together rehearsing the show. Dry tech or a dry technical rehearsal is the same team coming together without actors. It allows the design team to experience and reevaluate spacing, timing, and intensity. Mm-hmm. And they were like, great, awesome. Tech week comes along. Production stage manager goes, you know what? I'm no longer comfortable with this deal. <sighs> and I, I was just kind of like, well... Um, Ugh. what now? Ugh. Um, and, and to give you an idea too, I think two or three of our directors were film students. Um, and so I had gotten these names recommended to me from one of the directing professors from like the intro class, uh, essentially the, the semester before. And they were not used to the way theater operated. So it was very much like a, what do you mean we have to do, like, rehearsals? You know? Um, and on top of that, as I had mentioned, the, the department was overextended, and so there were no rehearsal spaces. Mm. Um, so normally what we would do is we'd sit down with our, like, production manager for the department and go Mm -hmm. like okay here's the productions that we're planning for the semester Mm -hmm. um we're gonna need x amount of rehearsal space for this much time like we just want to know that like we have it um but we got a lot of pushback that year especially um where they were just like you know what we're not guaranteeing you any rehearsal spaces um so that you know, when professors or whomever decided that they wanted that rehearsal space, they could essentially just say, like, hey, we're going to pull rank, like, get out. We yeah. need this space. Yeah. Um, so what I ended up doing is at the beginning of every week, when all of the rehearsal spaces for the week were posted on, like, a bulletin board, it was still that old school I, I would get up at like six and I would make my coffee and I would stroll on down to the theater building and I would sit in a chair waiting <laughs> for the production manager to post the rehearsal space. And then I would oh block gosh. out a bunch of spaces all across the week. Um, and I tried to get like two or three a day um, yeah. without like monopolizing all of them, obviously. Um and then essentially, as soon as I had finished that, I would send out an email to all of the directors and just be like, here are the times I have. Let me know what you want and anything else is on you. Uh, and so it was very much a like, everyone has to do their part, uh, but not a lot of people were either organized enough or like willing to do that part. Um, and this is what your your PSM, your your production stage manager would have been doing if she hadn't been double booked slash pulled out, and you're sort of like also covering 
as yeah. like producers do on the very small level of yeah. producing when there are less of us. I, I also think um, part of it too is we didn't do individual stage managers for the show. Yes, um, yeah. And after this year, I actually made a whole restructuring pa- plan and handed it to the president at the time and was That's like, cool. if you like I'm not gonna produce it again because like frankly after last year I don't want to touch it but like (laughs) if you follow this plan it will go seamlessly I promise (sighs) and then it did um I just wasn't the one doing it um what were some of those things that you were like this has to change for this to run smoothly basically the the way I structured it was So obviously when you have seven plays, that's a lot of stuff, even for 10 minute plays. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of props. There's a lot of, you need rehearsal spaces, you need rehearsal furniture, um, all of that stuff. Um, So what I did was essentially say, okay, instead of having like one or two people like take all of this Mm -hmm. what we're gonna do is have a production stage manager and two stage managers Mm -hmm. and they'll all take two shows uh and then the psm can take three if we decide to do seven shows again um so that we know that there's someone always in the room keeping track of you know, when rehearsals are happening, what props are we using? Like, what rehearsal furniture do we need for the show? Yes. Um, and basically just tried to streamline all of it so that no one was shouldering too much of the job. Um, because I, I think what, what really undid the process was... No one, myself included, frankly, uh, was particularly great at communicating like what was needed. And so everything was very last minute and very like, we need this now. Or like, yeah, we're, we just got these changes in and like the whole thing needs to be reblocked or whatever. Um, and to sort of prevent a lot of that from happening, it was just like, you report to this person specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I had in there was I wanted to make sure that the playwrights were getting the opportunity to really use this as a workshop rather than make it, you know, a short play festival uh, where, like, they didn't feel like they could make edits uh, past, like, the first week or two. And even if that's what they decided to do, um, I wanted them to have the option. So we also installed essentially a dramaturg position to like look after the playwrights and the directors from the artistic side and be like, hey, playwrights, do you feel taken care of? And like, hey, directors, like make sure of these things um, so that no one was being kind of strong-armed one way or the other and if there were disputes it didn't have to go through the stage manager it didn't have to go through the producer we had a person who was here is the creative head of the festival 
to help you with these disputes specifically. A dramaturg's role can vary depending on the project they are working on. In readings of new plays, like Hunter's Project, dramaturgs are often charged with championing the voice and intention of the playwright so they can help the playwright unlock the best possible version of their play. Sometimes, dramaturgs are also responsible for researching and contextualizing a play with consideration to its literary and historical context. Dramaturgs ask big questions of the playwright, the artistic team, and the world of the play, and help to find the answers. Because um, that was another thing, is just like, especially the, the film directors had a lot of trouble adapting to not only directing theater, but... Um, workshopping theater uh, because it's very different, you know, it's very different to take a finished product uh, and produce it than it is to be there along the roots of a new project. For you, what do you feel like the benefits are of like offering workshop readings or stage readings versus a fully produced festival? Honestly, I think the big thing for me in terms of workshop readings um, or staged readings um, is that plays aren't really meant to be read. They're meant to be heard and seen. And most of the time, a playwright needs that first production in order to make changes to the piece to make it what they want it to be because I think the thing that I always saw as both a director and a producer is a playwright would write the scene and then as soon as they saw it blocked with actors they would immediately go oh no that doesn't work that's not what I wanted um, and you can't you can't get that from just reading it on a page right yes, yeah. um, there's a certain level beyond even just envisioning and a lot of it comes down to once you have other collaborators in the room you have to take into account that this work is going to be interpreted in very different ways mm -hmm. um, and so the big thing about doing workshop productions and staged readings is one, you have to give the playwright as much space as possible uh, while still like making sure the production runs. Love um, that, yeah. But on top of that, know that this is a necessary part of the process for any theater to become, you know, the next great thing. Um and even if that's not the goal, it's just just for the playwright to be happy with how it turned out, you know? You need that interpretation, you need actors in front of you playing through it, because you can't get that from sitting and reading and editing. And I, I totally pulled you away from talking about your most memorable experience. So we, oh. <laughs> so we can go back. I, I think part of that, too, is I got a little rambly there. Uh, but basically, that was that, the most memorable experience came down to tech week of that process. 
I am now scrambling to find anyone to do this job. Uh, and I ended up not really finding anyone. So what happened was I started taking down all of the cues and acted as the like production stage manager. Cues are the written version of the what should happen when of a show choreographed by the designers and recorded and conducted by the stage manager. Yep, yep. But I was also tied into house managing oh, no. um, for yeah. a couple of the nights. And so what ended up happening is I just got um, like one or two stage manager friends and was like, I just need you to call the show. It's all you have to do. Cool. Just call the show. Yep. Um, and so they got like one dress rehearsal and then they called, I think, one or two nights uh, as I figured out everything in terms of house management um, and just like getting the show to run because it was it was also the first year of doing pre-sale tickets and the show was free. But we were allowing people to reserve ahead of time so that people's families could come and see it um, and like know that they had a spot uh, because this show historically had too many people coming that like you couldn't fit them all in the theater. And so we were we were standing room, I think all three nights um, and at least one afternoon. Um, and, and that, of course, as anyone who's worked in house management knows, as soon as you're, like, down to standing room and you're telling people on the wait list that, like, you have to turn them away because of fire code, <laughs> it's messy. It's real, real messy. Uh, so we were seating people anywhere we could in that theater. Um, so that was, that was my most memorable experience, I think, is just that this has to happen so just scramble and work until it does um yeah and that's how i would describe a lot of independent theater producing yes. <laughs> it's just like this has to happen so let's just get it done <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh if you if you were going to be a part of producing a staged reading or just a workshop reading um, at this point, what would be certain things for you that wouldn't be negotiable? You'd be like, this is what I need for this to be successful right now, or this is what I want to focus on. Yeah. And like, if the rest doesn't make it, then eh, whatever. Well, I, I guess it's hard to say, you know, mm -hmm. if I were purely just the producer on, on like, a workshop reading, uh, because I think that that happens a lot with especially workshop productions and stage readings, is, like, the writer is also the director, or the writer is totally. also the producer. Yes, that's a good um, point. Or what have you. Um, I think, for me, space is the most important thing. Um... And once you have space secured, everything else can kind of happen. At the end of the day, with a staged reading, or even most workshop productions, if you can turn the lights on and off in the room, <laughs> you have a show. Um, 
and every lighting designer who's listening just got really angry at me. <laughs> um, but, but it's true of like, as long as you have a space to rehearse and a space to perform, you can make it happen. Uh, so that would be the, the non-negotiable of like, this comes first is we have to know how we're going to secure performance space and rehearsal space. Because without that time, you don't get the iterations that are necessary on workshop productions and on stage readings where the playwright is intending to make edits and not just say, this is the draft, do the draft as it is, and then I'll make revisions. Uh, when they want to see, okay, I need to see these three pages today so that I can go and revise them. Um, the time is the most important thing um, mm -hmm. so that you can have those iterations. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, something that I think that is so specifically cool about your experience with producing, um, I, I also went specifically for a BA program to like round out things a little bit more, but I didn't yeah. realize even though there were a few other people doing some student producing like around, I didn't really realize it was an option. So I think that's so cool that you were able to find that and begin sort of rounding out yourself more as like a maker. Um, how does budget work with universities and sort of student groups for you all? You know, honestly, it would depend on the university, I'm Definitely. sure. Um, for us, a lot of it was we produced on either no budget, mm -hmm. um, or people would essentially go out of pocket, uh, for certain expenses, um, until we eventually in like year two or three of like, we're a company, this is what we're doing. Like we're going to try and emulate a theater company as much as possible, we did get our own sort of accounts and everything. Um, for some shows, like for Glory Days, we got a grant. Okay. Um, so that was where like most of the set building budget came from, but a lot of it was just the university and like certain professors, especially at the university, were more willing to either give their time or give scrap materials. That's awesome. Um, but a lot of it comes down to, in the same way of, of producing a friend show, is like, you need the upfront cost. This doesn't have to be provided by you, the producer, though it can be. It can also come from donations made by individuals you reached out to who want to support your work. Sometimes, especially for smaller projects like staged readings, you may find what you need completely through artistic partnerships. More on that in other episodes. Um, and like a lot of times that's going to come out of pocket, but mostly it's just if you want it to happen, there's some level of just source it from wherever it's free. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and we would do things too of like, I think eventually we got a storage unit where instead of buying lumber show specifically, we would like buy in whatever was the cheapest bulk amount um, and like 
people had it stored in garages and like <laughs> co- like costumes were just whatever you had in your closet yeah, um, yeah. and and I think that as much as people may sort of look down on that of like yeah it's not professional but like if you work hard enough it can look as nice as it's gonna look um, but again the biggest thing is just your network is the most valuable thing uh, in terms of producing, especially as a student um, and probably too as, as an independent, is just your network is very, very powerful and very rich. Uh, and a lot of the times people have things that they're like, yeah, I don't need this for the next month. So as long as you don't ruin it, it's fine. <laughs> yep. Like, go ahead and take it. Um <laughs> Yeah, and so so that's where a lot of the, like, financing came from. But we did eventually, as a student org of, like, a certain... Um, I, I forget how they classified it, but Temple had a way to classify student organizations okay. under specific requirements. And based on those requirements, you would get particular perks from the university, including, like, a yearly fund... Um, that you could only use on specific things. So we ended up, uh, on one particular year, we got an office in the, like, student center um, that didn't see much use other than storage, to be perfectly honest. Um, (laughs) But we we had yearly funds so that uh, if we were doing a show that we weren't charging any ticket sales for it was just like for the sake of doing it uh we could pull from those funds um and of course there are always strings attached with that kind of stuff but Mm -hmm. the the trick is don't be intimidated because these organizations are you know big and imposing and you're just like a little 18 year old yep yep just read the fine print it's gonna be okay yeah. You know, you you can find the money one way or another. You just have to be willing to look hard enough, um, whether it be grants or scholarships through your university, or even just if you have to fulfill certain requirements to get a university like fund uh, mm-hmm. for your organization. There are ways, um, and you just have to be willing to look for them. That's, it's such an important point. That is such an important point to ask and to look and to ask. Yeah. Yeah. The, the biggest thing you can do is, is ask, first of all, say please. Mm. <laughs> and, and really and truly, like a lot of why we got so much support is that, yeah, we were students. And so, of course, there was like some level of where students producing but like we did our best to be professional in every aspect that we could be um and that that is really critical too of the more you act like we're an organization this is what we do the more you try and emulate what it would be like to be a professional and approach these organizations and these funding you know opportunities as a professional um, the more likely you are to find support, especially because like when you are a student, people want to help you. 
yes. uh, because it's part of your education. It's yes. part of becoming uh, an emerging artist. It's easy to forget that too. Sometimes it, I feel like I didn't ask enough within the theater department, or I didn't ask to sit down and like essentially air quotes like have coffee or like buy yeah. coffee for professors. Um, uh, for I felt sure. like it was an imposition, but you you're like making such a resonant point. Yeah, and it's, unfortunately, I think it's a lesson that most people learn the hard way, and I learned it the hard way, too, of, like, you know, I, describing that, that experience with, uh, with Short Stuff the year I <laughs> produced it, I could have just asked for help, and I would oh, have found gosh. it, and things would have gone much smoother, <sighs> but because I was like, no, I'm just gonna, like, make it happen, I'm gonna do it all on my own. You're never on your own, especially in theater. Don't pretend like you are, and and don't forget that like there are other people there, um, because at the end of the day, that is how bad theater gets made when yeah. it's all made around one person. Yeah. Um, and that's how you end up with not catastrophic failures, but almost. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Are there any last thoughts you you have that you're like, this has to be out there in the world about producing readings in general? Hmm. Let me... Last thoughts, like, out in the world. Sip some whiskey. Yeah, Rattle yeah. some ice. Ponder. I think... Hmm. I think the thing to remember with producing is that Anyone can produce. Mm. There are definitely certain qualities that make a good producer. Mm. But at the end of the day, I, I like to say, a monkey with a bunch of form letter emails could produce theater. <laughs> um, all they have to do is enter the right names and send it out. And like, you could, in theory, produce a show. But the big things to keep in mind in being a good producer, some of it will come with time and come with mistakes, and that's stuff like foresight. Um, but a lot of it comes down to being the level head in the room when everyone else's passions are burning. Um, and, and just being as organized as you can reasonably be. You're never gonna know every outcome. You're never gonna be able to plan for everything. But being able to plan for enough that you're adaptable mm -hmm. and that you can respond to most situations is important to being a good producer. Yes, yeah. Thanks so much for talking with yeah. me today, Hunter. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I I had a great time uh, talking about old college days. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I think, again, I wish it was an experience more of us had in college, and I don't think we realized it, which is why it's such an, a great perspective to hear. And also, it laid your ground. Like, if you were like there's a short play that I'd like to help someone get thoughts on. Like, I guarantee now, from what you've talked about, you could reach out to some folks, yeah. find a space, and <laughs> use your director brain and direct the staged reading for them and, like, get it happening. Yeah, I, I would also say 
if if someone is telling you no, but you know in your gut that you can't accept that, it's time to start producing. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Like if if yeah. someone if you are throwing around new work to every place you can find and you keep getting no's, it's time to start producing. Yes. <laughs> because uh. every every piece of art is for someone, even the bad ones. <laughs> <laughs> that was Hunter Robinson. I am Brittany Brewer. This is No Small Parts. Thank you for listening. For more No Small Parts, visit our website at www.nosmallpartspodcast.com. <laughs>